Oh, the Valyard's charges. I always thought Valyard meant learned court prosecutor. Your points of law are spurious, your evidence weak, verging on irrelevant, and your reasoning quite unsound. In fact, your point of view belongs in quite another place. Perhaps the mantle of Valyard was a mistake. I would therefore suggest that you change it for the garment of quite another sort of yard. That of the Naka's yard! I'm Chris Wybie. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Journalist, we're here to talk about yet another episode of fucking Colin Baker's TV run. I hate this. I told Eddie before we started, I hate this. I even said I'm that maybe to be we here. totally <laughs> skip this episode completely. And we move directly into the McCoy era. Like what we could have done is we start with a little bit of Colin Baker and then suddenly we fall down and regenerate into the seventh, <laughs> seventh doctor. So, so we, we start this episode uh, wearing the wig of Colin Baker and then I hit my head and suddenly we're talking about uh, time in the Ronnie is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. All the time in the Ronnie is not a great episode. It is still better than this. And this is by the esteemed Robert Holmes. All right. That that's more joke. This is actually a thoroughly near standard watchable Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it it it's funny. We talked about how JNT had the great instinct of we need to get new writers for Doctor Who, and yet every watchable episode of this run has been inevitably Robert Holmes coming in and saving the show. <laughs> yeah. Since you mentioned it, I guess we'll start there for this. Initially, Doctor Who was going to be canceled by Michael Grade. Michael Grade became, I want to say, like the BBC controller at the time in 84, like a year or so before Colin took over the role. Didn't like Doctor Who and because he said it looked like, summarizing, looks like trash compared to what those Americans are doing with their big budget TV shows. And he wasn't completely wrong. It did look like it looked like trash, but the quality of the show originally come came from the writing and the ingenuity that it brought forward. That yeah, writing I mean, ingenuity, in my opinion, is missing from the Colin Baker era. But you're saying it. Well, I mean, also, Michael Gray's argument is 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 a bit suspect, too, because his argument was this show looks like crap. Therefore, we cut its budget. And then go back and go, oh, look, the show looks even worse now. Well, of yes. course it does, because you literally gave them half the money they had before to make the show. <laughs> I know. And uh, not only that, they said that your show was too violent and everything else, but they were also the people that approved the scripts ahead of time. So right. it is an argument based on a sinking foundation of lies. Because another part of it is, some of it, there's rumor that it could be also that Michael Grade at the time had a personal vendetta against Colin Baker because he was seeing Colin Baker's ex-wife, Liz Goddard, mm. at the time. That's right. There is an array of backstage drama that I know snippets of that I would love to see. That would be more entertaining, once again, than the actual show itself. Right. And, <laughs> and I mean, before getting to season proper, there was... Uh, the, the 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 cancellation that happened before this kind of came over my surprise. Uh, so they had like an entire set of scripts commissions they were looking at 
before they were told, yeah, you're not going to make any more. So it was a bit of a surprise to the show, but it also kind of shouldn't have been. Like, it's like this is kind of the weird catch-22, right? It's like when you look at all the backstage information, you can't really you – can't, you can't, it's like all the stories are true, but a lot of these problems are things that the BBC created for itself. The BBC put someone in the job that didn't want the job. The BBC cut budget and then said it looks like crap. The BBC wouldn't let them hire certain people, and then the script quality tanks. So a lot of it is is the BBC creating its own cycle of, of, of decline and then using it to try to justify Kate's like the show. But and, at the same time, it's also kind of hard to watch this era because it is genuinely not very good television. And they also put it against Coronation Street and things like that, which right. is is them wanting to kill a show, but there was enough fan outcrying with the the phenomenal doctor in distress music video that came out once they had canceled it to a soft cancel of whoa it's just on a pause for 18 months to let it breathe right and so colin baker nicole bryant everyone fought to have the show to come back mm-hmm. and they eventually agreed and that's where they like the thing about coming out for 18 months and they'll put it back on the air and the thing is you can't cancel a show because they say the show itself is still making money from how much it costs to make so the arguments there also fall apart. And it's that they just didn't like this one specific show and they wanted to create other things instead. Right. And, and so the, also the, the BBC is weird. Um, something that I'm always kind of new, but I'm continuing to wrap my head around as I live here is that it's, it's, it is a government institution in, in a way that I am not familiar with from the U S. Um, so, while this mandate has shifted over the the near century it's been around, it was created initially to kind of uh, entertain and inform, uh, and to uh, there there was initially a very strong thing of like it had to contribute to the the comp- the, the country's moral fiber on some level, um, which is always a concerning phrase. Uh, so when that's why when Doctor Who started, we talked about this a little bit back in the first Doctor's era that there was an educational mandate for the show that, that fell away as soon as the Daleks became commercially popular. Uh, and so the, the extremely reductive way to look at the BBC is that whether, whether the Tories or uh, the Labour is in charge. Because when the Tories are in charge, generally it needs to kind of make money. It needs to be run like a commercial television station. Uh, when Labour is in charge, it needs to be more educational. And Doctor Who always kind of falls into that middle zone because if it's making too much money, then it's crassly commercial and not contributing to education and a good moral fiber. It's too violent, whatever, blah, blah. And then if it is – if it softens its subject matter in order to appease that, then it becomes less popular and makes less money. So uh, at this era, it's kind of fighting both. It, It Modern BBC is very different in that regard. It still has some lingering elements uh, of that original structure, um, but now Doctor Who is more explicitly and extantly a commercial success, and so there's less contribution. And also, arguably, people's acceptance of the matter have changed to the point where Doctor Who now fills that more adequately. The you know, level, arguably, the level of violence in modern Doctor Who is on par with what we're seeing to, through a lot of the Colin Baker era. But now it's going to be more acceptable because that's just how television is made now. 
so it's also effectively 40 years later. So right. it has right. evolved since then. Right, Which right. you could go back to say that then Doctor Who was being ahead of its time if you wanted to kind of a generous interpretation of it. And that's, and that's honestly a – I'm trying to take a very charitable view of this because, I mean, it would be very easy for us and kind of a little bit boring to be like, this is why this sucks, this is why it sucks. So I'm trying to take a, a positive spin of this, and some of this is Doctor Who kind of exceeding its grasp, right? Like Doctor Who's always done well, I think, when it has constraints and it tries to punch above its weight. The problem is, is there's too much, too many constraints happening here, uh, and it's still trying to find a path forward. Like Doctor Who's one of the first, not the first, one of the first major British television exports. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it found commercial success outside of the UK in a way that very few shows had done prior. And that doesn't say that it never happens, but it also happens very explicit kind of weird corners doctor who consistently when it put video cassettes out would sell and they would sell in other countries besides the uk very consistently like you said it kept making money the money it was making however was not from the uk and that was kind of the problem was that that the it was like it, it's a british television show and needs to follow british guidelines and standards it doesn't matter what overseas people want but the overseas people are the reason why the show is making money. So that's kind of the catch 22 that's happening here. And Michael Gray is kind of trying to get one of those factors to change so he can justifiably cancel it. And it's not quite happening. And that's the problem that we're running into right here. In in addition to all of that back um, actual court, sorry, not courtroom, all of that office room drama going on, they didn't like J&T which you will find out because once the show got a 24 season, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. One of the yeah. things they told him to do to have the next season of Dr. Who, we're going to like lower your budget. You're going to be on this slot in this time, but we also need you to tell Colin to go fuck off. Right. And that was a sign of J and T. And some people think that was a move to see if J and T would then step down instead of going and backstabbing a person that he himself handpicked and wrote the role for and put into this, to do and and this is again kind of a weird thing like we've said before jnt is is deeply controversial and, and highly problematic but one thing is that he was loyal he didn't want to be in this job at this point he actually wanted to step away and was told he couldn't because to be blunt the BBC did not have any room for a gay man as a producer anywhere else in their slate. So they gave him what they perceived as the shit job. You could keep running Doctor Who. But JNT was kind of personally, okay, well, if this is the job I have, I'm still going to do the best because my my role is to defend and protect this show and do the best I can for this show. So he had a, a, a I, I don't want to use the word ethics, so that's the wrong word. Um, he had a, a duty, he felt, a self-imposed duty to make sure that the show did the best it could. So he vigorously and viciously defended the show to the best of his ability in a horrible environment. And so it's in a way almost tragic because he doesn't want this job, and yet he's – so So it's the – we have no place else for you to go, but also we're going to lambast you for doing a bad job on Doctor Who – what he he had to have seen that basically this is the BBC going. We don't want you anywhere. We want you out, but we can't legally do that. Mm-hmm. And coupled with having to deal with that from higher ups, he was also then in multiple heated fights with Eric. 
right as the script editor who wanted their own idea and the very different version of doctor who which ran counter to what he was being told by the executives counter i think to what colin and nicola wanted but eric mm-hmm. was pushing for and so it was a lot of additional drama till eventually eric sayer quits for the last episode of this run and this is all right so let me take a step back they commissioned Robert Holmes to write this one and one other that was going to be the conclusion, concluding piece of it out of the, mm-hmm. the four parts. And they had different writers for the middle pieces. And Robert Holmes wrote the Mysterious Planet script that was almost called uh, Wasteland or Robots of Ravelox. I kind of like Robots of Ravelox. I do kind of like so that. Yeah. Reminds you of like Robots of Death. Mm-hmm. Kind of another Tom Baker reach back, which yeah. I may make a comment about when we get started. <laughs> they got a bunch of notes just like eradicating that script about why it was so bad. And they made some minor tweaks and Holmes himself was a little bit distraught by the feedback. Eric, Eric was less than amused by that because he really looked up to Holmes as Holmes is an amazing writer. Cause yeah. I think we talked about it before we started airing Robert Holmes at worst makes watchable TV Yeah, at best makes something phenomenal. And mm-hmm. so that is an amazing track record. Like that's an amazing track to be on. Yeah. And the feedback they got, in my opinion, doesn't come from the quality of the script. It comes from the fact they're still trying to ax the show throughout this entire right. time. Mm-hmm. And Holmes is also supposed to write the final one, like the big reveal episode. And Holmes started writing, but unfortunately passed away because he was ill, making that his last contribution to Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Eric took over, wrote a script. JNT saw it, had feedback, and wanted to change the ending. Eric didn't like it, so he quit and said they couldn't use the script. So that's when they called in the Bakers, uh, Pip and Gene, I think are their names, mm-hmm. to come in and write the script. They had no access to Eric Sayer's script because it was legally can't do it. And they had 72 hours, I think, to write the finale of a four-part serial. That was one story. Well... A, a four-part serial, and B, the entire season, technically. <clears throat> because they had, they also had the right to not have the entire Trial of the Time Lord storyline. Yeah, so. And, and uh, also, I, 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 I think I, I also they did not... I serial use... where I'm considering each of these like one part of a thing instead of... Not oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Right. I thought you meant the actual four-part no. story. Yeah, and on top of that, I I think they did not even have access to Robert Holmes's they didn't. plot breakdown either, so... And I did think they had J and T in a room going mm, mm, at best. Right. So yeah. That so is, regardless of what you think of the ending, that is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. And I mean, and this is, and this is what's almost frustrating about trial of the time Lord, because you have 18 months to reboot your show, which while on the one hand is extremely frustrating. On the other hand, is an unprecedented amount of time. It's like, okay, we have a year and a half to make this the best season of television we could possibly make. And just everything seems to go wrong during the season. And some of it is because of the creative team. Some of it's not. Um, But we're left with, again, if you don't know the back stuff, 
what we're left with is the show goes off air for 18 months. It comes back, this big, huge reveal, and you go, really, that that's the best you can do? And so even some of the more ardent supporters of Doctor Who are starting to look at this and go, well, maybe there's a point here, you know? <laughs> and, and it's just the, wow, Colin was done wrong. I could on some level see why the radical measures were made. Uh, but again, that's all with the caveat of between the BBC and JNT, nobody here is is doing their best. And Eric, you can't forget. Yeah. Oh Eric, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Script editor, Eric, he, he has like control of those scripts that are coming in. That are right. the stories the actors have to then try to elevate. Right now, and, and again, and, and it's kind of a weird place because like. As a Doctor Who fan, obviously, I'm like, yeah, I really wish we could have had a better season. I wish it would be nice to have one season that has a really strong Pallon Baker run. And it's easy to kind of go, yeah, well, well, fuck Eric Sayward and and fuck Mike Reed and all that. But like, well, okay, maybe still fuck Mike Reed. Great. But as a creative, professional creative Having someone go, okay, listen, no, I hired a guy, I'm trying to protect him, and you're giving me shit, and the only leverage I have is to take my work and walk away with it and d- deny you it. That's that's a very valid tactic that I support. And the company decided rather than negotiate, they brought in other people to, to finish that work, which again is their right to do, but I so I'm like, I, I'm – I'm not as much stick as I give Eric Sayward. I, I can't disagree with his walking away from it in the same way. I can't disagree with Colin refusing to film a regeneration scene. I can disagree with Sayward more than I can Baker because mm-hmm. Sayward is someone that was, we'll say equivalent middle management. Right. And you, and you have a better insight into everything that's going on around you. You may mm-hmm. not like GNT, but if like this is a direction you have to go to save the show that you're working you have to compromise part of your vision to have this thing work. And I'm getting a very strong sense that Eric Sayer didn't want to compromise at all. Oh, continuously okay. that, and repeatedly throughout the process. <laughs> like I don't know my vision or my vision alone doesn't work. It never works. And I, okay. part of me as a writer understands saying, you know what? Fuck you. But if this has been your role for multiple years, it's not just about you anymore. It's about like all those people that come their jobs that are working here, doing these things. Right. And, and, and I mean, I, I, then I will say at least that we're looking at an era where everyone involved is, is, is a very flawed individual. Yes. Making some very bad decisions at a time when the show really needs someone to step up and just firmly take it in a new direction, which will happen with the next uh, script editor, Andrew Cartmel. Does exactly that. You almost need well, someone with a, a vision, someone that'll <laughs> bring in new scrappy energy and a bunch of new writers to try something, right? To, to add legacy, to but, almost I mean, again, add an other. But that's that's kind of my, my the, the weird thing of like that's what JNT tried to do. He just did it badly, and so he brought in the old guard, and they hadn't updated allegedly hadn't updated their material enough. I disagree. I feel like Robert Holmes did a good job here. So the answer was to bring in new energy. Uh, it's just that the bakers are not <laughs> the answer, right? 
and they were hired because they were old hands who could write fast. I mean, that that's straight up the reason why they were hired. And you can't argue with that in the situation you're in, but they wrote Time in the Ronnie, and that that's a thing that exists. Yeah. Part of part of it for me is I think that JNT was listening too much to the fans when yes. he was going to conventions. And that constantly made him shift his vision around. And I go before saying that there has to be a manager compromise for your vision, mm-hmm. but you can't be wishy-washy. Like you have to understand that what the essence of what your story is and what you're trying to do, and you keep that and you can change the parts around it. Like if your arc was to have the doctor be an absolute asshole and eventually warm, you have to understand that you're going to take a ratings hit. I'm not even in TV. And I know that you'll take a ratings hit for that time until people get used to the new doctor. And so you have to back that and then you reinforce it with good scripts. So you can have this one erratic piece, but everything else around them is good until they turn around and be good. Then you can get some shitty scripts in there. How? Very right. I'm done insulting the, the scripts there. I'm done because I don't understand. I don't know how much trouble the writers had to do to go through it or how many revisions they had or what other pressures they were under. There, the, well, well, there is an interesting pressure that is not talked about that I've discovered recently, which is fascinating. And so it, it comes from JNT uh, because – during 18 months, there was the, what are we going to do for the new season? JNT sees a musical in the West End called Time, David, Dave Clark's Time the Musical. And I'm going to read to you the plot summary of Time the Musical, which was produced in 1986, which would be around the time they would start production on this. Derived from 1970s musical The Time Lord by Psalms and Daniels, it focuses on contemporary rock musician Chris Wilder, who has been transported with his backup singers of band from a concert to the high court of the universe in the Andromeda Galaxy. In light of mankind's stride in space exploration, the Time Lord Melstiak has decided that time has come to examine Earth's people from what role they will play in the quest for universal peace, and Wilder and his band are called upon to defend their planet. <sighs> there is no evidence very scant evidence of what was in this play we can't find scripts there are very few shots of the set we don't know what was in this there's a concept album that was released but actually what was in the production we don't know but boy how it sounds like he just ripped off a musical for trial of time <laughs> you could have at least changed andromeda to something else like right that- <laughs> So I genuinely believe JNT went to a bunch of races. Oh, I saw this great musical. Make this. I wouldn't be surprised because the actor who plays the Valyard, the the actors and actresses who plays the Valyard and the Inquisitor were hired because JNT met them at a restaurant. <laughs> like, as someone that's horrible at networking, I got to say, I am moved by how networking must have worked. Colin got a job as a doctor because it was funny at a party. These people got a role because they were just at a restaurant with him. How do I learn to network like that, Eddie? Be a mediocre white guy. I can't do that. I'm an exceptional <laughs> black man. I would never get I know. That. I, 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 you're, you're too good. I'm sorry. <laughs> Which means I'll never be famous or make any money. All right. Good to know. Good pep talk. Good pep talk about the podcast. Oh. <sighs> So, I mean, yeah, this is – the fact that we got something that is vaguely watchable is actually a bit of a triumph considering all of this going on. 
Now, but this is such, such a such a such an owned goal, right? It, it's like you made the situation. <laughs> and for me, I will say this is the best TV era Colin Baker between the two seasons is this season. Yeah, I yeah, love season, yeah. I love the conceit of the trial. I love all the the trappings and the ideas behind it, but the execution is a little dodgy. But I love the Valyard as a character. Yeah, no. I love he, utterly and completely. There is a reason why every time the new era has made an allusion towards either some new Time Lord that's not the Master or some kind of weird dark version of the Doctor, the Valyard's name always comes up. He's, he is a enticing concept and he's very well played here. It's just that the plot straight up pulls a lost where it's like this really cool intriguing storyline that goes absolutely fucking nowhere <clears throat> and for anyone that hasn't watched like the trial of the time more completely the valyard you discover around the third episode is the doctor around his 12th or 13th regeneration right towards the end so like all the evil and everything else is on the doctor regenerates into the valyard so we yeah. get an evil version of the doctor being just badass, destroying everything, owning the master, owning like everyone else he comes around, which would be an exceptional thing to see. And I think last episode, I mentioned that the concept was wasted by the new doctor, by the new series of doctor who, and it is because they never used it. They kind of played and touched on it a little bit with like the time Lord victorious, maybe the time Lord victorious. Right. And they exactly. went, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Right. And I mean, on the one hand, I want a world where David Tennant plays a Valyard. Oh my god, that would be so amazing. It would have to be different than Kilgrave, though. Right. And I think he could do it. But you're right. It, 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 it's one of those things that, like, it's such a cool concept, and yet it only works... It only works this era because... So this is something that, that's, that's fascinating to me, is the we, I think we talked about during the third Doctor era that the Master is meant to be specifically a rival to John Pertwee's Doctor, not yeah. his Moriarty. Right. It was not meant to be the Doctor's Moriarty. It's meant to be the third Doctor's Moriarty. So on some level, I really feel like the Valyard is kind of another stab at that direction. He's very much the sixth Doctor's Moriarty. Uh, uh, you know, because he is just as eloquent, just as erudite, just as persnickety about points of order, uh, just as obsessed with detail, um, and arguably, like we talked about before, not as good as his job as he thinks he is. There's a <laughs> lot of parallels between the Valyard and the Sixth Doctor specifically, um, and so while it's an enticing concept, and as a fan, I would love to see a new version of the Valyard. I also think that on some level it would be hard to not do it outside of Colin Baker and the guy who plays the value here because they're very specifically those exact characters are in parallel to each other. I I agree. And that'd be pretty amazing. This it's the very least of them. I think big finish could pull off. Uh, they have done, they did a one shot of against the value yard. And then of course it's big finish. Let's, let's take any, 10 second gap and make it to an entire box set. Uh, they did do an entire box set of what led up to the sixth doctor actually regenerating and the value plays a big role in that. 
since we're about to transition the episode proper for a synopsis, one of the things that the actors did, um, Nicola and Colin, is that for the 18-month break in between, they decided that that 18-month period was also how long their characters had been together. So mm-hmm. that's why we get them acting softer and more sort of engaged with each other. Yeah. Which the dynamic between those two for the opening scene we're going to discuss, if it had been like that for the near entire run, I think the show would have been better. I completely agree. It's 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 sadly too short of a taste of what a good Perry Six Doctor dynamic could have looked like. And even after the the twin dilemma incident, if the next episode had started with them in a relationship like that, it would have sanded off some of the edges for Colin's Doctor, making him more tolerable until you get to equivalent this version of him. Right. Because it would have shown her accepting him, even if her role had not changed, which she was underutilized and is a little more than a uh, MacGuffin for most of the plots. Right. Yeah, I did. It's it's there is an interesting fan. Well, not for a fan theory, um, but uh, go back to finish for a second. Uh, Big finish, like I said make anything into content um they've done audio drama versions of the not produced series uh and so if you actually stop watching at the end of season 23 i think it is or no 22 of trial of time lord listen to those audios and then watch trial of time lord there is actually a proper arc for dr and perry which is is quite satisfying um it's it's thin it's not massive but it is there and it does involve still coming back so you know you got that to look forward to you and the still obsession but it all but it also has you know the doctor and perry media giant space whale so i mean it's not it, it, there's some good shit in there did they bring back the celestial toy maker in the audio they adventures did so there's that um and he and he's in control of video games and very specifically 80s era arcade video games which is to its credit, Big Finish very much kept what popular culture viewpoints of how video games work intact. So it is complete rubbish from a modern perspective, but it's about what you expect older guys who don't know how video games actually work think video games work. So it's, it's very authentic, sometimes to its detriment. But yes, the toy maker comes back and controls video games that control people because that's how these things work. I'm willing to bet you they didn't make one of those scripts. Do you know the one I'm thinking that I'm sure they didn't make? Which one? How to Cure Yellow Fever. Yeah. I I bet they didn't make that. What's that? I I have some bad news for you. (laughs) They they did not make that. They did. (laughs) Did it occur in Shanghai how it was supposed to? It. Hang on, I got it. I would be scared to have a bunch of white British men write that, Eddie. Because there was a um, – so you tell if you ever how to cure it. Uh, I'm looking it up because it, it's been a minute since I've listened to it. Uh, it was a, uh unscripted Fourth Doctor serial, actually. I think it was supposed to be in season 23. Oh, no, the, you're right. The alternative you're right. season 23 that didn't happen. No, no, I'm sorry. You're right. It was done for that. So – but Big Finish didn't do it that way, I don't think. You can tell we don't want to talk about this episode. Uh, 
I think it is more fun us talking about the six doctors in general. Oh no, you're right. Uh, I guess it was. Done. I'm pretty sure they didn't make that. That maybe I'm thinking of a different episode. Then I may be thinking of a you different be. serial. It's entirely possible. Uh, so I may be wrong on this front because um, I am looking around, and usually the Doctor Who wiki is kind of says, "Oh yeah, and this was redone by a Big Finish." Uh, it, well, okay, it wasn't. Dom- was it a novelization? From what from what I know, I'm willing to bet that if they tried to make it, it would make the talons of Wang Cheyenne look PC. Right. Since we're here, real quick, uh, the story was to take place in Singapore and featured the return of the Autons, suggested appearances by the Tremass Master, the first Ronnie, and the Brigadier on holiday. The story is written later than the rest of the season, so the script is only a proposal form at the time of the cancellation. A basic outline of the story was to see the Master and Ronnie operating under the guise of a traveling street theater involved in a plot with the Autons. The story would open with Perry seeing the Statue of Liberty on the scanner screen, and she would think she was back in America, only to find it was a massive cultural guard with many miniature landmarks on display. Uh, so no. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I must be thinking of a different, uh, show then because they did not do, actually do that one for like Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> the point is, uh, where are kind of going with all of this is we're, we're, we're kind of talking about this because frankly, there's not much to talk about. Um, we will talk about it, but the reality is, is that, this season shows you the potential of what could have been. And I think that has obsessed people ever since, you know, it's like, what does a good six doctor season look like? And so I think big finish, the novels, uh, the comic strips, everyone else has tried to create what they believe to be a good six doctor run. And as a result, they're all very different because they're all taking different slices of the Sixth Doctor. But this story by Robert Holmes shows you that it could have been done. There's nothing inherently wrong with the structure. It is just how it was written and how it was produced. And so I think that has obsessed people for decades ever since, which is why we're talking about this stuff. Because it's, it, you want that to be there. You want that to, to exist, and it just didn't. Nope. One more quick point before we move on is... I asked, I think, an episode or two ago doing Doctor Who, how old the Doctor was. And in this one, we have him state he's 900 years old. But in Revelation of the Daleks, that happened before this and happened before the break, in like the two-year period that the actors said were going to be there, he stated again he was 900 years old. And I think in an episode or something after this with Mel, he'll also state he's 900 years old. I feel that the show doesn't want for some reason, they're afraid of the doctor saying, oh, I'm, I'm like 3,000 years old or 2,000 years old. I'm picking up on that hesitancy that's right here because when we even hit Tennant's doctor, he says he's 900 years old. Right. Yeah, it has become kind of a meme. I have always interpreted it like uh, a middle-aged men or women who will say, I'm 39 when they're clearly not. Right. It, it's the... I don't want to admit that I am older than arbitrary date. So like, I don't want to admit that I am four digits of age. So I really think that just the doctor and his, their midlife crisis. Like, oh no, I'm 900. It's like, no, you're now clearly, I'm, clearly several thousand years old. I don't know, I'm 900. <laughs> and admittedly, now we do know that during Peter Capaldi's era, he became well over a million years old. Right. Because he had to break through the wall with his fist. Um, all right. Right. 
to the synopsis of this episode. I like the ending of that episode. I mean, but that's a, maybe one day we'll get there and that might be an episode Eddie picks because I wouldn't pick that episode. I'd only pick the ones that I thought were good out of the Capaldi run. So maybe that's three. Oh, the best oh. special effects ever on Doctor Who are seeing the over. opening title secret for this. We get the massive spaceship pulling yeah. in the TARDIS. It is beautiful. Yeah. I think it is, is the most expensive good. piece of Doctor Who ever filmed. If you take into account the year that it was made, I think it cost over 8,000 pounds. Like, good, that yeah. shot. That was a model shot, so they had to build that model. Uh, I think it was six feet is like how big it was. Wow. So incredible. And uh, JNT justified it as like he wanted to like draw in audiences because this might be people's first time seeing it or people coming back after 18 months who want to like grab their attention. And mm-hmm. I specifically pause here because I want to take a moment. I think that he did it because of the feedback he got from Michael Grade about the quality and production of the show. To show that we could do that if we had a budget. To show them what it would look like. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. I think the money could have been spent better in other places. So. The TARDIS materializes in a corridor and the Sixth Doctor emerges, bewildered and alone. He walks into a room and quips with a man dressed in black. Then other Gallifreyans arrive. Uh staring at him as they begin an inquiry for his conduct unbecoming of a time lord and transgressing the first law of time. The Inquisitor notes that the Doctor has been on trial previously for similar charges. The Valyard states that the Doctor was shown too much leniency on that occasion. The Doctor calls the entire trial a farce, tries to play the present card, and is quickly told that he was deposed for neglecting his duties. He then refuses a court defender and would rather speak for himself. The Valyard plans to show two separate incidences. The first opens a case by using the Matrix to show the Doctor's action on the planet Ravalox. Locks, locks, locks. I, I just... Although I, I have been hot and cold on the use of continuity in Jane Tierra, I love this use of continuity because they're like, is the Doctor going, oh, by the way, I've been the president for like several years now, several seasons, and them going, yeah... But you haven't actually done your job, so we got rid of you. It's like a nice moment of here's continuity, and here's why it doesn't matter. Let's move on. Thank you. That is what continuity should be used for. It should be used for minor little notes and gags like that. It's like you were depo- I'm just going, looking hurt, like, oh, I was? You hated the job. You didn't want it, and now you're mad you don't have it. That's just That was great. I love that moment. In in a way, though, it also feels like it's a callback to Colin's first appearance on Doctor Who. Because remember, right, it was in the Ark of Infinity when he becomes a president. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And that's when Colin was a captain of the guard and shot. Uh, right. right. And we get the most badass scene ever of Nyssa drawing a staser on the president of Gallifrey to defend the Doctor. Like, that is a companion you want who is ride or die. Draw down, man. Love it. I love the opening scene because it sets the entire stage for everything we're going to do. And it shows you the snippets that's going to be scattered throughout the rest of the season. It's mm. a good good place for it. And it also gives us a Valyard who you know is a villain because it's easy TV coding. Right. He's dressed in black. He's quippy and arrogant. Right. And he has a, a distinct sneer in his voice. It's like, okay, you're, you're, you're not subtle. We get what's going on here. Um. But it is interesting that the Inquisitor, which is not a word that we have positive connotations to, is actually the supposedly neutral party in this. But 
Eddie, they're sporting the high collars, so we know that it's going to be a fair trial. All <laughs> Gallifreyans with high collars are fair and just. It's not like yes. they're banish a doctor, force a generation or anything. High collars win the day. They, they certainly would not drag him out of the war, the war master's shenanigans and put him on trial for five seconds and banish two of his <laughs> human companions with no memories whatsoever just to force him to have a different face and then banish him to Earth in the 1970s or maybe the 1980s for no reason. No. <laughs> Any other comments about the opening <laughs> bit? I wanted to, no, to get that up. All right. The Doctor and Perry arrive on Rabalux, which is virtually identical to Earth. He tells Perry that the official records state that the planet was devastated by a solar fireball. But the forest or the forests they're walking through suggest otherwise. Sablon glitz and dimmer. Banter as they prepare to sniper the Doctor, who managed to wander off just in time. And both express their upsetness and not being able to kill him. Perry expresses a feeling of deja vu as they wander around and wants to leave before the duo discover a cave entrance. The doctor and Perry enter the cavern. Glitz and his cohort discuss their plan to destroy the L3 robot by sabotaging its black light converter system, which locals have turned into a totem they worship. The criminals attempt to intimidate, intimidate the locals who they call primitives with a loud bang saying, take me to your leader. Perry discovers a sign in the ca- in the cavern saying Marble Arch, a London underground sign. This means that they're on Earth. Perry begins to mourn for her planet. The doctor interrupts, uh, interrupts and replies that it's not really relevant. We're time travelers. Whatever. He then asks Perry, then asks why Perry is not with him at this. Nap. Nah, sorry, I feel pod. I'm reading my notes and I made a error there that I need to fix myself that I won't do live on air. Instead, I'll talk about it for a minute and distract you (laughs) that I made a mistake by making it sound funny. Back in the courtroom, the Valyard answers that Perry is where the doctor left her and the doctor must have temporary amnesia as a side effect of being taken out of time. I'm pausing there. Right. Quick note at the ends. I actually did kind of like the note of we're taking out of time, you have to say amnesia because that actually plays into the joke I made about the third doctor, because that's exactly what happened to him last trial. So it's like, there is neat interlavening of, of past references here, but again, in a good way, as opposed to the annoying way that happened in previous seasons, it's like the, let's just use this to kind of build up the mythology of the show rather than make it seem like things you have to check off to understand what's going on. Do you know why it's so well done? Because Robert Holmes. Yes. Robert Holmes. (laughs) Which you could tell is Robert Holmes because it involves, Two sleazy con men as characters. We gotta take a minute to talk about Glitz. He oh, is so an incredible character, and he will come back again and again. So much so that I think reading some of the fan stuff, it looks like he is considered a companion. I can't consider him a companion because right. he's not. He just shows up. He's, he's sort of a, a sidekick at best. No, but he is like the best part of this show. He's the best part of Dragonfire he's because he is a character that's kind of aware of the tropes being thrust upon him and rejects them to some degree which is hilarious because he's like i know my role in this is to be the stupid evil space jerk space pirate but i'm actually erudite and kind of annoyed at the roles i have to play in this on some level <laughs> and it's it's great because dipper is absolutely that role right dipper is like no i am i am the the ruthless 
lowbrow space pirate. And Sabon gets has aspirations to not only be better than that, but also kind of be better than the story. And he works, right? It's like, <laughs> I don't want to be in this story. I want to be in a different story where I'm in, I'm the lead. And it's like, yeah, I kind of want that too, actually. <laughs> it is incredible because Robert Holm takes a concept that uh, Eric's here had been trying to use, like a, a hard like a hard, we'll say hard man, because it's always like a male they choose to do. Yeah. Uh, a hard man that comes in and does all this stuff and is kicking butt in the show. And Holmes takes that conceit and makes it into something that actually works. Sayer to tried multiple iterations. We had like yep. Layden who was fighting Cybermans and stuff didn't work. We had the thespian from the one with the great fire of London kind of worked, but not quite there mm. and a few other iterations, but this one works and sticks. Yeah. And I think the reason why is because Robert Holmes has always been good about recognizing that Doctor Who is best when it's slightly silly. And Glitz is exactly that. He's slightly silly, and he's, again, self-aware of the kind of show he's in. It's not, it's not Deadpool breaking the fourth wall or anything. But it, it's the I don't have to explain to you my role in the narrative. You see me, and Dibber's there to kind of fill in any gaps. But ultimately, it's like I am space pirate, so I can build from that immediately, and start going into more interesting places while keeping that hard space pirate, ruthless mercenary vibe. Because Eric Eric Sayward constantly had to reinforce and reestablish his hard, he's hard, he's hard. And it's like no, let's just start from that point and go somewhere else. Robert Holmes has confidence. The audience knows how these tropes work in a way that Eric Stayward was never entirely confident with. Mm -hmm. And taking a step back to the doctor and Perry specifically, this telling also fixes a problem I've had with previous, some fifth doctor and most of Colin's run is that it centers on the doctor and Perry almost from the start. Mm -hmm. Even if we remove the original piece with the courtroom trial, it centers with the doctor and Perry doing something together as a TARDIS team. Right. And it shows a doctor taking a role that he will take more predominantly in the seventh series with ACE as a mentor of mm -hmm. sorts for Perry. Like he understands that the planet can't be at this point, but he also knows that this is Perry's field and he's waiting for Perry to make those connections that he's already made. But you have the point of reference. The doctor has hundreds of years of experience. So of course he would read some of these conclusions faster. Right. And then Perry puts in to add in that you already knew this. So you get that friendship right there. Right. But it, it, it's the, the bickering now is very, very clearly lighthearted. These are friends who are comfortable in their bickering, not actually at each other's throats. And that was not at all clear in previous seasons. And we get Perry wearing reasonable outfits now. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I've, I gave some stick about J&T's original purpose, but I, as a young Chris, was, was swayed by Perry and J&T's planning. I, I won't lie. I was. And it me, as me. an older Chris, I think that Perry should be able to dress how Perry, the actress, wants to. And that's why I leave that statement. Right. Um, it, it certainly is the height of mid-80s fashion. <laughs> With the, the hair and the shoulder pads. It's just... Perfect. What I couldn't tell that I was trying to see, because I was trying to see, do they do they have her in heels or is she not in heels? Because that would have been like the final determining factor. Because if, if you're heels in a forest, running through the forest, I would quibble with you. That's that's right. unreasonable. I, I she should have pulled. 
she should have pulled a Letty fucking Lewis and took off those shoes and like ran. <laughs> I had to make my joke. I couldn't help well, myself. Well, one of the reasons why Ace is great because Ace wears boots and that's that's much more reasonable. Ace, we're going to really get into like favorite companions at the end of this classic run. I hope you're ready yeah. for that. Uh, okay. I also like that we kind of get a retread of uh, a story we didn't cover, uh, Face of Evil, which is where the fourth Doctor meets Leela. Um, but it's another version of let's take advanced technology and reframe it as m- m- more mystical components. And again, because much like Face of Evil, which I not sure I think Robert Holmes also wrote. But the idea is that this allegedly primitive culture is not is not stupid. They just have different knowledge. Um, and so I really love the fact that Glitz and Dibber are going to pull the classic, we'll, we'll pretend to be space gods and cow them, and they're just like, oh, it's you assholes again. And I just really dig that. <laughs> it's like, oh, look, it's more people from the stars. Yes, yes. Please take us away from this thing that we worship. Oh, by the way, oh, there are the guns. Thanks so much. <laughs> I, mean, I just love the fact they're so like, over it. <laughs> Face of Evil was written by uh, Chris Boucher. Script editor, Robert Holmes. There it is. Okay. I knew that I knew there was some component of Robert Holmes in there. Once again, Robert Holmes, I think we've established was a very bitter person, but was Swanger. fucking exceptional. Like I can't stress enough how good he was. And I would have loved to have seen J and T not have a mandate to get rid of all the original writers originally, and at least had Holmes throughout more of that Davison and Baker run than what we got. I think that could have also helped turn things around. Yeah. I, I think in particular, Davison would have worked really well against more home scripts just because, and we saw in Caves of Andromeda, uh, or Andrzejewski, sorry, uh, because <laughs> his Getting bitterness there. balances really well with uh, uh, Davison's human doctor. So I think that would have been just some fantastic uh, frisson that came from that. Um, it still works really well. But it's mostly because Colin is swallowing a lot of his bombast to make this script work. And before we move on, I want to point out that we still get some of the doctor's callousness when Perry constantly wants to leave because she has a bad feeling about what's going on. Yeah. And his like, no, like, I want to see what this is. My want is more important than yours. I understand we're friends now, but I need to know what this is. Right. The big difference that's happening here, which again, why Robert Holmes is good, is that before I specifically said Vengeance on Varos, I was annoyed because the doctor did that and was proven right. Robert Holmes recognizes the doctor does that and needs to be proven wrong. So so Perry was absolutely right to be worried to be here. And arguably the doctor would not be on trial if he had listened to her. So he is objectively – if he had listened to his companion, he would not be in the problem he is now. So that is the way you handle this. You, ha- you can have an arrogant doctor. You can have a doctor who's callous, but you need the companion to balance him. And this is, again, so frustrating because in this small snippet, we're seeing a potentially really good season between these two characters. Absolutely. As the Matrix resumes, showing the events in Ravelox, Perry is still distraught, and the doctor fails to comfort her and refuses to leave the mystery. The Doctor discovers a secret door and goes into the complex alone. Two masked figures appear and capture Perry. Meanwhile, Glitz and Dibber are brought before the Queen. Glitz claims that the totem attracted the fireball that devastated Ravelox and asks for it to be taken down. The Queen tells him that 
the the other star travel travelers have come and asked for the totem to be dismantled and they have yet to succeed glitz and his cohort draw their guns but are quickly overpowered by the locals and locked up the doctor finds an underground complex and picks up a bottle of water out in the open almost like it's a trap this it's off an alarm and people enter and subdue him he is accused of stealing water and sentenced to be stoned the doctor tries to block the rocks with his umbrella but is knocked unconscious Back in the courtroom, the Valyard proposes that the inquiry into the doctor's activity should become a full-blown trial, with the penalty being the termination of his life. Credits. Bum, bum, bum. Again, like, the him finding a bottle of water and just being jumped on is so stupid, but Robert <laughs> Holmes does that intentionally. It's like, this makes no sense, and we recognize this, and his bitterness at, at, at this is actually just re- ends up being really great of like of course this society makes no sense and that's actually the point of the script <laughs> whereas in a lesser hand like eric saywards it would have been like let's make a dark thing about the conservation resources it's like no it's 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 such a ludicrous concept like literally one bottle of water is a huge problem that's silly let's lean into that it's the fact that it's out in the middle of the floor a big bottle and this half a dozen dudes are standing behind the door waiting. Maybe someone's going to grab it. Maybe to leap out. Like that is. I mean, you might as well have the bottle line. of water like under a box with a stick holding it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> as I've become the Doctor Who fashionista for our show, mm. let me comment that. Unlike the previous iterations that we've seen of the, so far, I have no problem with the outfits in this episode because one, they're not supposedly a military force. Right. Two, they've been trapped underground and they're all color coded more or less by like what their roles are. Simple. Mm-hmm. It's not overly complex. And eh. I... yeah, no, it's, 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 I mean, it, it very clearly was like, we don't have much budget. Like like the fact that the, the helmets are absolutely the same helmets from Earthshock Repainted. I mean, it's not even subtle. But again, like in a way, this is the lack of budget is actually helping them to a degree because it's the let's just focus on what we do at, which is good script writing and good acting. And here we're seeing a lot of it. But do you know why they're the Earthshock helmets just repainted? I don't actually. It's two million years later. They just found him laying around. Because <laughs> we don't know it yet, but this is going to be Earth. So, bada B, right there. Oh, my God. Yeah. The L3 is... robot watched Earthshock and then knew about those helmets and had his people come and take them and paint them. Oh, my God. The L3 robot is, in fact, the audience for Doctor Who. That's. I have so many questions now. Because in that briefcase, I'm jumping ahead. I don't care. That briefcase at the end is full of secrets. And one of those is just Doctor Who videos on uh, microdots. <laughs> that does bring up another interesting point is uh, obviously this needs to be shot like a television show. And diegetically, what we're watching is is part of this trial. And I do like in this episode, the doctor is like, wait a minute. <laughs> How do you have this? And the Valyard's like, oh, by the way, we just bugged your TARDIS. And he's like, what? wait, whoa, go back to that. Like, nope, moving on. More trial. I just love that. It's like they explain it and just don't fucking care. And again, pure Robert Holmes of like, here, here's your explanation, nerds. 
it but it works on another <laughs> layer because that is what the time lords would do yes and the doctor is arrogant enough not to have checked yeah absolutely he's like you you could possibly bug my tardis we totally did what when whenever reasons whatever <laughs> you, you've planted here so many times we have absolutely had time to bug it <laughs> it it could have been any time. It could have been like the first Doctor, second, all the way up to now, and any time during all those regenerations. It is humorous, irrelevant, and poignant all at once. And also has the extra layer of like, it opens up questions like, how long has this been going on? Has the entire run of Doctor Who actually been Matrix projections of his adventures? It could be, right? It, 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 it's, it's, it's so good because it's like, it's the right amount of opening questions, adding to the mythology while not staying too long. That's one of the reasons why Robert Holmes also did Deadly Assassin. And it's great because he presents the Time Lord Society and gives you just enough to follow it along, but not so much that you get bogged down. And so it's interesting. And that's why later follow-ons with Gallifrey get more frustrating because they try to answer the questions that shouldn't be answered. Robert Holmes is like, no, we don't care about this. Let's focus on the good shit. And the same thing here. It's like just, okay, here's – apparently I have to give answers. Here's your fucking answer. Get back to the good shit. <clears throat> And it also reinforces once again that the Time Lords must know what he's been doing all this time and specifically choose when they want him to do something. Like the right. fourth Doctor and of the Daleks. They made an active choice in to interfere with you to do this thing because we know what you're doing and we're right. letting you do it. Right. And then if you go with the argument of all of televised Doctor Who is ultimately a Matrix projection, then it's like, okay, so you've witnessed him do some shit that you should have stepped in on and you fucking didn't. But again, that tracks what we know the Time Lords. Because the laws of time and they don't interfere. Supposedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Allegedly. Any other comments about any of that great plot beat before we move on? I know we're, we're racing through, but I don't think we care about this episode. As much. No, no. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, I will point out one thing though. I love. Sablon Glitz. All right. The Doctor accuses the Valyard of wanting him dead, but the Inquisitor calms him, stating that it'll be a fair trial. Other officials arrive and break up the the stoning. The Doctor is still breathing before he can be killed. Murden receives a message from the Immortal, stating that he wishes to question the Doctor. The Immortal is revealed to be a huge humanoid robot, commanding its two assistants to release the service robot. Perry is brought before the Queen, who informs her that there are few women in the tribe of the free. She needs to take on many husbands as she'll become a productive member of the tribe. She's put in prison with Glitz and Dipper. The criminals tell Perry about the light converter and inquire about the doctor. Perry tells him that he is a time Lord and a criminal. Oh, sorry. Perry tells him he's a, a time Lord and the criminals accuse the time Lords of having sent him here. Perry expresses her own prudish nature about having multiple partners at one time. And the criminals talk about how they still need the locals. The two are taken back to the queen who tells him that glitz will be sacrificed to the fire because of his attempt to destroy the great totem. You don't know what to say. You look stunned. I too was stunned that Perry was so prudish about multiple husbands. Right. I mean, polyamory in the future. Come on. Let's just all get on on the bus. Regardless of the actor, John, John Berriman, I think Jack's approach to life in space and time is the best approach to take. You're right. Absolutely. No, I'm stunned because I deeply love the big stupid robot because it, it's it's just it, – it, it's 
oh god i mean like it's a giant robot and his head is basically just two horns he has no face it's wonderful it's great because it because i actually love it because the design is a little off-putting you don't have to worry about is the face going to sync up or how it's going to look or how the actor no it's, it's just a guy with a giant u shoved on his head and the only only emoting he gets is turning his head side to side occasionally <laughs> but it actually kind of works because it's so simple it 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 you get past the shoddiness of it to what's going on again that's what doctor who's sweet spot is like okay the, we can't make an elaborate robot here so it's not let's make a very simple robot and focus on the script focus on the story are you kidding me? I think I had that robot as an action figure growing up. It is perfect. Oh my it, god, it, it looks, looks fantastic. It looks like it should be a Masters of the Universe character. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's great. I, I love it. Alright, so I'm not sure how you watch watch your episodes, but on Amazon, because I watched them on Amazon Prime and the BBC thing there, and I was annoyed when I started part two, because we get the the startling cliffhanger from part one where the doctor gets stoned and uses his umbrella. And then it's like, Hey, wasn't that a good idea? Look what I did. Look what I did. And then episode part two starts up with the doctor saying, Hey, look what I did. Look what I did over there with the, with the stone. So it's giving me a minute and a half recap of the minute and a half. I just saw. Well, I mean, that that's, yeah, that's the same thing. I, Cause I'm watching episode episode in this case. Um, and that's pretty common uh, for the era um, because for a, for a long time, Doctor Who, it was we're going to replay a section of the previous the last bit of the episode, and it shows that sometimes they pick their cliffhangers very badly, right? Because the point is like we're supposed to we're supposed to come back from the cliffhanger, remind us quickly from a week ago, which is week week allegedly, um, what the cliffhanger was, and then that segue right into how he gets out of it, and it just kind of reinforces that this is a rubbish cliffhanger and not in a good way, not in a the mentats knocked me down and I stood back uh, up again way. <laughs> what, I'm get back I, to that one. <laughs> what I failed to mention before we started into the synopsis is that the 45 minute format was considered a failure. So that's one of oh, the things right, they yeah. had to do. And they went back to the idea of the like 25 minute four episode pieces, which we get to see here, which in my opinion works better. It does like the 45 minutes. It could be because I was conditioned for the 25 minutes, but 45 minutes, 50 minutes felt wrong and off for watching Doctor Who. And I still say that now, even watching the new episodes of Doctor Who, I'd rather have them be shorter episodes. I mean, I, I feel like the, the problem happened is that they dealt with 45-minute episodes by taking two 25-minute episodes and just sticking them together. So the episode just goes into a cliffhanger and then immediately gets out of it. Um, so the pacing feels weird. Uh, modern Doctor Who does better at it but certainly there are times where the, the concept just it, doctor who is pacing is weird because on the one hand you have four 25 minute episodes sometimes three as we get further on but right now we're still roughly four episodes an episode so you really have a hundred minutes of story which the new series generally takes those and tries to compress them into 45 minutes so it feels too fast paced at times for the concepts mm -hmm. But other times, it's trying to shoot for uh, a 25-minute episode story that's padded out to 45 minutes, um, and so sometimes it also feels baggy. So, like, there's very few modern Doctor Who episodes that feel like they're well-paced, but 
that is more consistently true as the show has gone on. But certainly the first few seasons, it's people who remember Doctor Who trying – am I taking a 25-minute episode and spanning it, or am I taking a 100 minutes of episode and compressing it? And, and it's really – the pacing only feels good when you have those two or even three-parters because that's a more natural flow, as it were. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on that. It doesn't feel quite right, but some of it, I think, also is you're right. We are conditioned after, what, 600 bloody episodes of these that, like, yeah. oh, it's 22 and a half minutes. It's time for the doctor to do something stupid. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Are, do you mean, like, see a cliff and use your umbrella to sort of scale down Hang for no apparent yes. reason to end on a cliffhanger? Oh, Dragonfire. <laughs> Dragonfire, you're so good and so bad. All right. <clears throat> <sighs> the queen, the queen, the queen. She she was great first episode, <laughs> and then this happens, and it's just like, oh, we were we were doing so well. <laughs> I like the idea of what they're playing with, but it gets a little. I don't even have the right word for it. It gets too squishy. Like this is where it starts getting a little squishy for me as a viewer. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the idea that she's looking to the flames to tell her the story of whatever it is because it's leaning into the concept of mysticism. But at the same time, the queen appears to be a very tactical thinker. So they could be talking about the mysticism and flames is to like fool all the rubes that are following her everywhere she goes. Right. Because she's already got a plan, but now she's telling the plan through sort of a mysticism lens, which I like. But the society that they're trying to build around it now is starting for me as a viewer to fall apart. Right, because... And this is as much as we will love and have continued to love upon Robert Holmes. This is where cynicism kind of works against him because like, of course there's nothing under the veneer. Of course, it's just a bunch of random mystical nonsense. And it's like, no, the, the right answer should have been either a more logical extrapolation of the technology into what this culture is or her more explicitly using these thin trappings as a part of political game. But at this point – it seems like she genuinely buys into the myth of her culture while also appearing to be more knowledgeable about what's going on. So it, it's starting to jar. Yeah. These two versions don't quite work together. What I forgot to mention previously is that the people starring the doctor, the lead of them is some, a character named Balthazar, who is like the great reader who's read oh, a yeah. massive library of three books, one of which including like the British habitat of birds. Right. Which could be pertinent later or could not be or maybe i just wanted to say it because i think it's uh ridiculous by was it was it hrm stationary office yeah <laughs> and i personally as a writer like the name balthazar i don't know i'm gonna use it but i'm gonna pull that name and use it somewhere balthazar any other comments before we move on nope let's go on <clears throat> the doctor inquires about the immortal and learns that he's been locked away for over 500 years only when needed did two of the brightest are allowed to go inside and serve him. The doctor is taking the immortal who introduces himself as Drathro and has been waiting for centuries for his arrival. The doctor clears up the confusion with Drathro that he just decided to come here and Drathro commands the doctor to work with his two assistants who are rifling through the doctor's pockets to fix the black light problem. Back at the trial, the Valyard comments on the doctor's corruptive influence Back inside of the video, the doctor identifies a problem and tries to leave to fix it. But Drathro doesn't allow him to do to do that as his 
Instructions are to maintain an underground system. The doctor electrifies both the robot and his two assistants to escape. Drathro sends his service robot to track down the doctor. Meanwhile, Perry, Glitz, and Dibber overpower the guards and escape. Dibber remains behind to plant a bomb on the black light converter whilst they go to the underground complex. So Robert Holmes goes, yo, dog, I heard you like bickering uh, antagonists. Here's some more anti- bickering antagonists inside of your bickering antagonists. And so we have the two assistants who, if it were not for Glitz and Dibber, would be the runaway characters. But unfortunately, they're competing with Glitz and Dibber, which is very hard to do. <laughs> but they're still fascinated because, again, like they – this is a big dumb robot who can't emote very much because of the limitations. So Robert Holmes is a smart thing. Let's put two characters around him that can carry that load. And so you have these two characters who are ostensibly have no personality, but in fact have loads of it and just argue about the dumbest shit. And if I were to place a bet, knowing what little I know about Robert Holmes is probably also a slight thing at Dr. Who fans. <laughs> Because the shit they're arguing doesn't matter, and the robot really says doesn't matter, but really they really care about these very important minor points of detail, and I'm like, that does feel a bit loaded. <laughs> but during the scene itself, it's also a time where you get to see the doctor admit something that he doesn't know a lot about, which is yeah. kind of a reoccurring theme for Colin's doctor. And goes back and reinforces, I think my initial assertion is that Colin's doctor is not the brightest doctor. Right. Hands down. And also... It does something that are so frustratingly few of these episodes do, which is that they showcase the fact that Colin is very funny. And so the script is just him kind of yelling at a robot and then yelling at his two assistants. But what's happening on the screen is the assistants pulling stuff out of his pocket and him trying to do that while having a conversation. Finally, like, Would you just stop it? And it's hilarious kind of physical comedy that Colin has almost never gotten to do. And it's so good. And if you're looking at what they pull out of his pockets, there's a teddy bear and some other things and a bag of sweets, which makes you wonder, yeah. does he have jelly babies? It, it, it walks right up to the line of like, is that jelly babies? <laughs> so doing so much with so little is just fun to see. And, and honestly, it's funny. Like it's, it's the, we, we talked about this way back in the day, but like it is almost a Troughton-esque performance which continues to reinforce how much of an influence Troughton has on the character of the doctor, because I could see Troughton doing that exact scene. Yeah. And given that Troughton came back to be in a sixth doctor yep. episode, mm-hmm. even more so. I could see, and, I could see, I could see Troughton maybe advising him and suggesting some of the stuff to him. Absolutely. And it's reinforcing the plot at the same time about the black light converter and how important it is. So it's letting you mm-hmm. know that is the actual MacGuffin of everything that we're doing. It's linking all those together and just, an offhanded way. It's blatant, but it's just kind of offhanded. Yeah, this is the plot. We're not really focused on that. Let's keep moving. So, Chris, I have a question for you. Yes. What is black light? Black light is the energy source that Drathos uses. What does it do? Stuff. How does it work? Well, it's absorbed through the totem, that's a beacon, that goes into a computer system that then sends out waves almost like it was built by Tesla, so it's energy waves going out, that Drathros <laughs> absorbs into his being and functions. Duh, come on, Eddie. This is so, basic. So, so what you're saying is, Drathros is Edison. <laughs> yeah, I am. And 
the, what I love is the fact that you got that from all of that nonsense I just told you. Uh, yeah, that's why this is a podcast really just for us. I'm starting to <laughs> Any other comments on all this plot that yeah. we just have? It's a good one. Uh, in Marb Station, Merdine tells Balthazar that there has been no fire for hundreds of years and he should leave the complex. They encounter the doctor and Merdine implores him to help Balthazar escape. Perry, Glitz, and Dibber, pursued by locals, find the doctor as they are leaving the tunnels and they flee back into Marb Station, but are trapped between the hunters and the service robot. When Perry asks what they should do, the doctor replies, I don't know. I really think this could be the end. Doom. Credits. Right. Which, again, is like, <clears throat> let's compare this to uh, Avengers of Baros, where the doctor was kind of sulky and um, you know, he's easily defeated and it's like, I, I, I can't do anything. This is a better version of that exact same trope, right? This is a doctor who's sulky and sometimes depressive and sometimes gives in too easy. This is a better way of doing that. Make that into a cliffhanger. That's fantastic. Don't make him sit in the TARDIS until Perry grudgingly convinces him to actually engage with the plot. It, 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 it's like, okay, no, actually make it like the, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how we're getting out of this. And then like next episode, oh wait, that's right. That's how I get out of this. Of course, that's how Doctor works. Doctor's going to get out of it. But make that into a character beat of like, no, we're going to die, I guess. And I like that. It's actually really good. Yeah, that's that's too spot on. I don't have anything really to add. That was really, really well done. Part three. God, we're only on part three. Uh, <laughs> the group is saved when the when the tribe's hunters shoot and disable the service robot. The hunter party leader is broken tooth. Another person, Merdine, helped escape the tunnels. The doctor tries to re-enter the underground complex, but the hunters insist they all return to the village. In the courtroom, the Inquisitor comments on the violence, and the Valyard states that the Doctor uses excessive violence, and you have to see these graphic scenes because that's what Doctor Who is. On Ravelox, the Doctor is brought before the Queen. She's unimpressed with his explanation of the true nature of the totem and puts them all in prison except Balthazar while she reads the flames to determine their fate. The assistants repair the sentry robot, sorry, the service robot, which continues its search for the doctor. And you get to see it cruising over the land. Almost like it's a prop from the prisoner in the 60s. Oh, God, yeah. And really, the only thing I have to say about the section is the sheer balls of Robert Holmes going, no, seriously, you need violence. I'm I'm still pissed off at what happened in Waterhouse <laughs> back in the Tom Baker era. I'm going to grind this axe again 15 years later in this script I'm getting paid work for hire for. Fuck you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Why do we have to watch this violence? Because I said so. <laughs> He's so angry. <laughs> so That's something it. that oh, something that I sort of skipped over here briefly is that during parts of these, some of the Matrix scenes have been edited. Yes. Oh yeah, that one. And and the Valyard, when questioned, goes, "Well, the High Council said it had to be edited." Mm -hmm. And so we know there's something else going on. Yeah. <sighs> Why are we doing this episode, Eddie? Really? Do we have to finish? Can't we just suddenly like stop? I'm laughing a lot for an episode that we say we hate. <laughs> I know I am, but it's my stick now that we've come this far. And much like Colin, I'm going to endure to the end of it. Glitch razzes the doctor about 
uh, time rings and being a time lord, but confirming the planet is actually Earth. Drathos reactivated service robot enters a village. It breaks into the building with the doctor, stuns him after an attempted handshake, and then takes him away. We get another courtroom scene. Uh, Dratho believes the doctor has armed the villagers for the Time Lords. The villagers disable the service robot and decide to attack the Immortal's castle to steal his technology, believing that they have killed the Immortal. Perry rescues the doctor from the remains of the service robot, while the criminals tell her that it's too late, they shouldn't even bother with him, he's probably dead, and plot their own revenge. Colin is a very bad Tom Baker impersonation. Jane. They set off to the underground complex to stop the queen to disable the black light system. And Glitz and Diver make a lot of jokes about philanthropists. Then the <laughs> pair enter the tunnels seeking stuff. The courtroom scene of the val- there's a courtroom scene in the Valyard saying the remains of scene has been exercised by the High Council. They decide it's not in the best interest, not in the best interest of public of the public. The doctor could have stopped everything right here by objecting and requesting that they go and look into this missing footage, but doesn't. Back inside the Matrix video screen, the doctor and Perry encounter Medine in the corridors of the underground complex. He tells him that he is hunting. When the doctor asks who the quarry is, he looks at the doctor and says, You! He raises crossbow weapon at the doctor and fires! Credits. That's the show. The show can't cancel right now. Come by crossbow. Who would have thought? I, I, I'll, once again, my favorite kind of dumb cliffhanger because spoiler for ten seconds from now, he's not actually he's not actually firing the doctor. He's firing somebody else. But he still says you, knowing that's going to be misinterpreted because we need a cliffhanger here. It's dumb. I love it. Uh, no, the the the, the, the philanthropist joke is like the best part of this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the fact that Robert Holmes is like, I know I have plot to do, but really, I just want to just really dig into these characters. He clearly is more interested in Glitz and Dibber, but not in the way we've talked about before where Eric Sayward would write the Doctor out. Robert Holmes realizes the Doctor is part of this, so he uses the opportunity to not only establish these characters more, but also kind of pokes fun at people like the Doctor, because Doctor is ultimately a philanthropist. And so they make jokes about philanthropy. And so it's not quite making fun of the show, but certainly, again, walking up that line, because a few times now that they've been doing this. I guess more important to me is, is I like the Robert Holmes' continued abject distrust of the government. <laughs> Where he's just like, oh, no, we just sent this for the public interest. That's fine, right? No one to have a concern about that. I think Holmes does it well to go back to your slightly your other point is that the doctor is the protagonist of this episode, hands down. Mm-hmm. Doctor and Perry are protagonists, and they're going through the plot beats. They're doing all the hard lifting and work. Glitz and Dibber, who are his primary characters, are the comic relief, and they're tangentially related to the plot. They'll be very important in the finale of the plot, and they had importance at the beginning of the plot. But during the middle, there were all the funnest. Like, right hands down and that's how it should work throughout the entire time it doesn't remove agency from our protagonist but it adds in flavor yeah on the other hand the 
I, I before praised the little continuity nods. Now we're starting to get a little too many of them. Um, because not only do we have the doctor coming back and mistaking uh, Perry for Sarah Jane, like you said, doing a bad Tom Baker impression, but also a throwaway joke about time rings. And it's like, now the show is starting to, it moved from, thank you for recognizing my fandom and making clever notes to it, to kind of the, yeah, but wasn't Tom Baker better? Is kind of where it's starting to land a bit more now. And then he's not wrong, but this is supposed to be about reinventing Colin and continuing having Colin point back to previous eras of Doctor Who that were popular is, is, is getting a bit uncomfortable at this stage. So I think this is a meta thing, though, because if I remember right, Colin Baker at the time says that he wanted to have a longer run than Tom Baker did. Okay. In addition, you've got Holmes, who even when he wrote for Davison, says he was writing a script for Tom. Yeah. To you, Holmes's error, era, regardless of how much we give him praise, is the Tom Baker era. So everything he's doing is probably going to reference what he himself is more associated with and loves. Right. And, and I will say to Colin's credit, I mean, obviously the the amnesia little bit aside, um, he's doing a really good job of taking what, like you said, is pretty clearly Tom Baker style dialogue and putting his own stamp on it. This is, like you said earlier, a glimpse at a really fun version of the Sixth Doctor that we didn't get before when we're not going to get a ton of after this. And much like with Caves of Androzani, it's like a good actor taking somebody else's lines and putting his own stamp on them could actually do a lot better than lines that are essentially written for them that are kind of lukewarm and mediocre. The, 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 the challenge of how do I take this and put my own spin on it? Again, doing that kind of Troughton-esque runaround. Yes, it's a notch different doctor, but blending Tom Baker's bombast with Troughton's physical comedy does result in a distinctive third option that is mm-hmm. the sixth doctor. And so this point where it's more about continuity nods and less about taking Bakerish li- Tom Bakerish lines and turning them to Colin Bakerish lines uh, gets a little, for me, a little kind of like, I get it, I get it. it, it it's frustrating. But I think you're right. Like this is Colin's doing way better in this script, paradoxically, again, because it's not written for him. And something that we've sort of hinted at, but I'll state now, is that throughout the course of this, you have people constantly talking about time lords and time rings, which are not yeah. back, but at the same time, that wouldn't be common knowledge. Right. So how does Glitz, a con man, and like pirate know about time lords and time rings so it's right. layering and plot right there it's funny throwaway nods and everything else that you're not paying necessarily paying attention to true and the nice thing about this is that also the fans are so inured with time lord references that they're probably not even catching initially that this is supposed to be a weird thing um and the time lords themselves are arrogant enough that they're not interesting but the, the, the doctor in the trial saga is starting to kind of go wait a minute why do they know that? Why is this stuff being excised? And when, like you said, the stuff is excised here, it, it's implied that Time Lord secrets are being revealed on some level, but it's Glitz and Dibber revealing that information. It's like, why are these two, like you said, why are these two con men possessing a secret that's so terrifying that the High Council has censored it? Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it is a good balance of let's take comedy and humor and also layer in uh, a really dark 
horrible metaphors about overreaching government censorship, which again is peak Robert Holmes. Any final comments not before we move on to part four? Nope, let's go to the last episode. The queen and her tribe arrive at the castle where they are confronted by Drathro. He executes a queen and dismisses the rest of them. In the courtroom, the doctor confronts the charges head on, calling them a farce, engaging in a heated argument with the Valyard. Glib, Glitz, and Dibber are edited again by the Valyard, hiding vital information and angers both Inquisitor and the doctor. The Valyard plays a slightly less edited version, and the two know of something tapping to the greatest source of information in the galaxy. Which is the Matrix. We don't know that. They don't see the Matrix. It's it's implied to be the Matrix at this point. The Inquisitor doesn't think that. The Doctor doesn't think that yet. And this is... What makes this season both intriguing and frustrating is that it implies, oh, there's this massive time war conspiracy going on. And where will that go? Um, but arguably conspiracy theory TV shows aren't even done well now, but this is before the X-Files, right? So no one knows how to do yeah. a conspiracy TV show well yet. Uh, and so it's strong to make that kind of the the spine of your framing story for this season is like the, the doctor in the midst of his own trial is going to uncover a time war conspiracy. The problem is or for the audience to get that Everybody else in this trial has to act like a complete idiot. Yeah, I just wanted to stop and point that out before we move on. Uh, any other comments? I kind of want a version of this show where it's the Tile Trammler, but done as Ace Attorney. But other than that, <laughs> objection! Perry convinces Mardine not to kill all the innocent people he was ordered to by Drathoro. The doctor enters Drathoro's domain, promising to help repair the Black Light system. However, he determines it's beyond repair and tells Dratho that he must shut down the black light system to prevent a massive explosion. Dratho refuses, as it would mean his own destruction. The doctor pleads with him, saying that the explosion could destroy the entire universe. That makes Dratho determined to allow what he thinks is a unique event. Balthazar and Perry plead with Mardine to help them, noting that he would die if the converter exploded. Glitz and Dibber arrive and follow them into the castle through a food chute. Drather tries to kill them by turning on the food processing system, but Dibber shoots him through the wall. Glitz tells Drather that they have Blacklight on their ship and offers to take the robot to the Andromeda Galaxy. Drather agrees, gathers all of its microdot secrets into a briefcase, and leaves with Glitz and Dibber. I'm looking at Eddie I, for comments. I, I honestly don't have much. I mean, uh, right. stuff happens. <laughs> The doctor realizes that the black light system is already beginning to self-destruct. All he can do to prevent it, it is start a chain reaction. The system explodes, but the blast only destroys the castle, and the and the, as a result, Drather collapses. Glitz and Dibber collect a piece of black light metal worth a small fortune that'll fund their next venture. The doctor and Perry leave Mardine and Balthazar to take the remaining inhabitants to form a new life on the surface. The doctor is determined to uncover what secrets the criminals wanted, and who moved Earth slash Ravalox to its new location. The doctor announces to the court that he has saved the universe and states and starts to present his offense. The Inquisitor says, in due time, doctor. The doctor comments about the withheld evidence and that his pr presence was requested. 
The Valyard counters every point the doctor makes, almost as if he knows what he'll say. The Valyard warns the doctor that he has more evidence to come and that the court will determine the doctor's life at the end. Roll credits. And weird look from Colin. Right. So, I mean, recognizing that television court drama obviously has no parallel to real world's legal systems now that work. Um, and I made the ace attorney joke because his attorney also is in no way, shape, or form anything really resembling an actual effective legal system. But all of that said, the doctor has some really valid points. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's ambushed by this evidence, has had no chance to actually mount a meaningful offense. He's told repeatedly by both the Inquisitor and the Valyard that he'll be allowed to defend himself in time, but that time has not yet come in four episodes. He every time he tends to raise an a actual objection, he is told off by either the prosecutor or the judge effectively. And when he goes, okay, well I've been quiet. You present the evidence. Now it's my turn. It's like no, no, wait. I have even more evidence. <laughs> and it's like okay, but seriously, I have had no chance to review any of this to mount any kind of defense. I'm just being bombarded with stuff. And on top of that, the evidence has been censored, and I have been told that the judge is allowed to see it, but I am not. This should have been thrown out of court. You make a bunch of good points, and I'm in agreement. But, you know, in, in this defense, I'm going to say that it has a better understanding of the court system than She-Hulk does. Boom! <laughs> I pulled out a Marvel gag, and it's it is true. Uh, okay, fair. That's a very low bar to clear, but you're right. Uh, and it's just I, I agree. It's it's the fact that they needed it for more drama and suspense they're building up. And immediately they stay early on. He has like two distinctive cases he wants to go to give you, but the fact that Doctor hasn't been able to see it and it's all edited would definitely mean that it would not fly. Right. But who knows in space court. Well, and that's what's that's what's I joke about it, but actually, I think it's working well here. Is that this is an extremely thin framing device, and so the only way this works is if this is a kangaroo court. And so the show, and of course, being Robert Holmes, he's like, "Of course it is. He's not, even, he's not even trying to hide it. <laughs> of course, this is just a stitch up by the government to try to get a political dissident off the books in a ostensibly legal fashion." So it's like, that's not at all a metaphor for any government we're talking about in the 80s. <laughs> so the fact that works really well because the shows are trying to hide that. It's weird that the Inquisitor doesn't quite know that's what's actually going on. So that leads to an interesting level. Okay, so maybe there's more layers happening here. The High Council seems to be interfering with this, and the Inquisitors apparently have a separate jurisdiction, which again, alluded to the front because the fact that he's not on Gallifrey, he's on a space station, which mm-hmm. kind of has the international waters vibe about it. But it also gives you the bureaucracy that's associated with Gallifrey. And sometimes they're just people who are jobbers and the inquisitor is a jobber. And right. she believes in the system that she's supposedly supporting and is doing the work. Yeah. So which makes you think the doctor would get potentially a fair trial from her. Right. It's all the other factors around her that are influencing what happens. Right. So as a start for this season, you're right. It's incredibly strong. It, it gives you a window into a season that could have been. 
It gives you a window into a version of the Sixth Doctor that could have been. But not everyone can be Robert Holmes. And so this is going to continue to go downhill. And at the start of it, it had, I think, great viewing figures. And mm-hmm. those viewing figures held strong throughout the season, I think, for the the first half. And then they dipped. And then they potentially skyrocketed back up for the finale, if memory right. serves. Right. Because uh, I say we're, we're going to skip over Bonnie L- Langford, Mel. Uh, she was, as I understand, stunt casting, right? She was a, a person that people would have recognized at the time. And so they hired her as a well-known actress to play in Doctor Who. Um, and uh, they managed the incredible feat of mismanaging her character even more than Perry. Uh, so she's got that going for her. She was a child star, and then she did a bunch of musicals and other things, and she's even yeah. still doing musicals today. And she came, and she's coming back to Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, supposedly she was a, the character Mel is a computer programmer, and throughout yeah. the entire course of the show, she never once came near a computer. Nope. <laughs> And so, of course, due to the weirdness of the, the trial of Time Lord, we actually don't even know what her origin story is because we, we meet her in media res, which, again, interesting concept of just having a companion show up. But it never goes anywhere, sadly. Isn't there an audio big finish adventure that shows her? It's called like the two doc, like the two doctors or something where she meets him out of yeah. out of time, out of sync. Yes, it's um oh it's not the two doctors it's uh something else oh but you're right because it's two versions of the sixth doctor yeah it, so so we have the version of the sixth doctor that meets Mel but also a later version of the doctor has to come back uh, and make sure that works out the way it's supposed to and so she actually actually meets the later sixth doctor first and then the earlier sixth doctor meets her later before it takes her off on her adventures um and it's it's honestly it's a, it's a bit of a farce and that's how you need to play that and that works out well on that front at one point in time no i'm thinking of uh a mel uh, of a perry story so there's, another, there's a perry story where she also meets two versions of the doctor uh and at one point then he dresses up in a rubber suit but which is a hilarious gag of uh, the doctor literally wears a rubber monster suit um and terrorizes perry and it's like that's just fantastic so anyway, any closing thoughts on the television run of the Sixth Doctor? We did it. it it's 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 a deeply frustrating era of television. Um, I because it would be easier if I hated Colin Baker. It'd be easier if it was just top to bottom garbage. It's not. Uh, as much as we make fun of this episode, as much as we make fun of Vengeance on Faros, there are bits and pieces of it that show that the Doctor Who we love is still somewhere under this cruft. And again, we harp on about it, but Big Finish has done so much to redeem Colin Baker's reputation as the Sixth Doctor, and the Sixth Doctor as a character, uh, to show that going back and knowing that and going back to watch the show is even more frustrating because it's like you could almost see bits and pieces of that in there. But it's just buried under so much Eric Saywardness that it, it kind of just gets. I mean, it, it's more than that, but it, it's easy to point Eric and go, "It's he's the fault." It's not not only really his fault, but he's kind of the patient zero of everything that's wrong with the show at this point. And a lot of my thoughts are similar to yours that it would be easier to to just hate it and write it off 
if Colin Baker wasn't such a wonderful human being from everything that we've seen yeah. read and him interacting with the universe. And yeah. the fact that even with all of this shit that was piled on top of him as a person, at no point in time did he ever belittle or berate the show. He supported the show from even then to now, if not the people behind it. So like that shows someone that cared about the thing they did, cared about the fans that were out there and continued to work and came back when the regime changed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Colin Baker in a nutshell, fandom was largely against him uh, and and very, very roundly turned on him. And still, I mean, just now we're still talking shit about his episodes. He still went to conventions. He still did interviews. He, for a long time, he still supported the show, even when, Nothing about the show was supporting him. Uh, and I think it speaks a lot to his character as an actor. Um, Nicola Bryant, again, she got garbage scripts. She got terrible characterization. She still supported the show and still supports the show. Um, and their faith in the show has borne out. The show has grown to appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that both of them got to do a uh, Tales of the TARDIS thing. I was surprised to see the Six Doctor episode. I figured... That was one they would skip. They didn't, and they did the best <laughs> with what they could, given the shit sham which they had to, to work with. Um, but at the end of the day, as frustrating and as terrible as the relationship between Six Doctor and Perry started at, it showed that there was something there. Those two actors have a genuine affection for each other, and it's just so. That's why it's so annoying to watch episodes. And why? And why? It, this is not a. I hate this and it's bad and I want to talk about it because it's boring. It's I hate this and bad and I want to talk about it because I just get mad because I want mm-hmm. the shows I can see in my head. And while while you say that, we have never said anything bad about Colin Baker, the actor. We've gone I think gone out of our way to point out that yeah. it was the scripts he was given and the environment that he had to work in for him mm-hmm. and Nicola and I forgot her name now, but uh um, Bonnie Langford. Bonnie Langford. Because Bonnie Langford has dealt with a bunch of shit too after that too. Yeah. And atrocious. <laughs> so all of them yeah. had it rough and they all came back in some form or another. Yeah. But Bonnie, I think was the one who took actually a time away, time away Dr. Who for a while, but she was, so we're, we're going to kind of skip over this, the male era real quick, but basically um, she started off kind of again, in media res in Colin Baker's run, which is not well liked. And then she's pointed to as the reason why the Seventh Doctor's weaker shows are the way they are, neither of which are true, and none of them which are her fault. But she kind of got the short stick of both eras in mm-hmm. that regard. So I was genuinely surprised and pleased when she came back to Doctor Who recently to the point where my family members were like, who the hell is this? And I had to explain Mel to them because she's not well known. But it yeah. shows that every era of Doctor Who has its – people who love it and are affectionate about it. And as time goes on, you can look back and see the good bits of it. But man, it's hard to do at this, at this point. Do you have a closing quote for us to wrap, wrap, wrap up the sixth doctor? I do. It is not from the television series. We've talked a lot about big finish. I want to kind of show some of the greatness that came from the sixth era, sixth doctor era, of big finish. This is from the Marian conspiracy. What would you say if I were to tell you that I once destroyed an entire race, that I have led friends to their deaths and caused numerous wars, that my intervention has led to peaceful races taking up arms and good people having their faith or reason destroyed, or because I failed to act, 
millions upon millions of people have been enslaved or killed? What if I had done all of these things, but I'd always, always believed that I was doing the right thing? And that quote, is the quote. character I love. If, well, what can people expect next time when we come back to do more Doctor Who? The rest of the trial of time, Lord. We're going through every single season, every single yes. episode. Yes. Even going to do, oh, no, we're not. We're actually going to skip not only the rest of this season, but the next two. <laughs> we're going all the way to season 26 of the Seventh Doctor era, arguably the best season of Classic Doctor Who ever. <laughs> uh, and we're going to watch the first four episodes of that season, Battlefield, uh, where the Seventh Doctor, no shit, fights King Arthur. <laughs> if people are looking to support you, where can they go and do that? Uh, they can go to uh, my website, pugsteady.com. Uh, if they want to give me money directly, the best way to do that is through my creator-owned stuff at realmsofpugmire.com. Or you can back my Patreon, where I am doing Realms of Pugmire fiction about what's a month. Uh, so if you want some short stories by me and want to give me some cash, that is a great way to do that. How about you? Uh, if you're looking to support me, you can come to my website, darkerstudios.com, and buy some of my less than 100 copies of Haunted West. You can join the Patreon and get great exclusive journalist episodes where, where I also then post historical information and random game stuff. Awesome. So with that, uh, we're going to leave you with the oft mentions, never repeated, thank God, <laughs> Doctor in Distress. 